Yeah, it's working. All right. I also want to check. I haven't used a clicker like this before, so let's see. How does it work? Do I press the back and forth? Do I need to put it this way? There we go. All right, it works. Okay, excellent. Okay, now I can't see you very well because of the lights glaring in my eyes, but um, this is my third time preaching here at North Central up on stage. I guess I've preached for Bats Chapel before, but uh, the difference for me is that this time I know so many more of you, and uh, this time instead of uh, just kind of running around like a chicken with my head cut off because I'm just trying to make it. I love a lot of you guys. I've had conversations with a lot of you guys. I admire a lot of you. And I can call you out by name. I see Sophie. I see Adam. I see Isaac. <laughs> I see Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> and I know your names, and for that reason, it makes this a lot more comfortable, because I've already talked to you before. You all know a lot about me, actually. And I try to be very honest, uh, as honest as I can about my own uh, relationship with God, my own thoughts about Scripture, my own struggles with my relationship with God and Scripture, in hopes that you understand, too, that it's okay to be on a continuous journey. Dr. Lear, as myself, has a PhD in Bible, and I'm still learning about God, and I'm still working through what it means to be a Christian. So, with that in mind, uh, another thing I want to tell you is that um, I think of myself primarily as a teacher, and we can talk about preaching and teaching and where's the line between those, but today I'm here to be primarily a teacher, and we're going to kind of go through some layers together as I teach you. Are you guys okay with layers? All right. So we're going to go through some layers. I'm going to give you some background. Now, first of all, the first background that you guys need to know is that I really love the Bible. But, okay, so we all love the Bible, right? We all love the Bible because it's God's word, hallelujah, right? But I, I get really excited about words. I get really excited about sentences. I get really excited about paragraphs and how all of those parts fit together. And so when I read the Bible, I get excited about the words and which words are there. Um, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit with you. So... Here we go. I just have a theme. I'm doing a little introduction. We're going to talk about Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and that's me. Background. How to understand the Bible as a text. All right? This is exciting, guys. Hallelujah. Okay. How many of you guys have seen a pipe in Scripture before? <laughs> I mean, in chapel. I am not advocating smoking. It is not good for your lungs. But um, this is a piece of artwork. Um, it is painted by a surrealist uh, painter from Belgium. His name is Re René Magritte. And 
what do you see here, guys? A pipe, right? Any French speakers in the room? French readers? What does it say? Yeah. Ceci n'est pas un pipe. It is not a pipe. This is not a pipe. Exactly. What? You just looked at the picture and you said, that's a pipe. So what is going on there? Well, when, you, when they asked the artist, Rene, about this piece of artwork, he said, well, I can't stuff it. I can't light it. I can't smoke it. It's not a pipe. It is a representation of a pipe. It is a picture of a pipe. Again, I'm not advocating smoking at all here, okay? It's just a useful illustration. Now, there's all kinds of philosophy that we can go behind this, and we can talk to Dr. Tennyson and all my esteemed colleagues about this. But this little illustration helps me understand scripture a little bit. Because I find a lot of the times that people come to scripture and they're so focused on this happened that they understand the biblical text as being almost reality. Now, I, I could get myself into trouble. I'm not saying anything horrible here. What I'm saying is, is that scripture is not actually, this isn't, this isn't the physical thing. Instead, what you have is a representation of what happened. This is a text. The Bible is something that was written down. It's not actually the history, if you will. It is written down. And for me, making that distinction is really important because if someone written, wrote it down, that means that they chose specific words and specific sentences and specific paragraphs to paint the representation of reality that they want you to get. So, where do we go with that? The New Testament writers were writing a representation of reality. They were not primarily reporters. They were theologians. They wanted to tell us something about God working in history and not some history about God working. And that's an important distinction as you come to the Bible to read it, to remember that their primary interest is that you understand God, not that you understand history. And it's important to remember that they have chosen the words and the phrases for a specific reason. Now, God is, the, the Bible is written by theologians. Another important thing, now this is a big, nasty quote, and I'm going to read it and then I'm going to explain it. So, Michael Lyons and Jacob Strongberg both uh, wrote, Scriptural exegesis lay at the heart of Jewish and Christian identity formation in and around the Second Temple period. There, there were, of course, many factors that would have shaped the construction of one's notions of self, 
of the other, and of the group or groups which one might be affiliated. But in no small measure, Jewish and Christian communities were, or became, textual communities with exegetically derived identities. Thank you, Michael Lyons. Thank you, Jacob Strongberg. What do they mean by this? They mean, okay, the way I put it, let me move to my next slide here. That the, old, the world view of the writers of scripture at that time during the Second Temple period was shaped by the text that they were reading. And the text mostly that they were reading was the Old Testament. They understood themselves through these texts and then they created even more. They read this text, they read, read this text, they interpreted them and said, oh, that is who I am which is what we do all the time, right? We read the text, we say, this is what a Christian is, that's who I am. We have identities that are formed through exegesis, through reading and interpreting the biblical text. And that was the same with the New Testament authors. But they didn't have the New Testament yet, they were writing it. Their scriptures were the Old Testament, and that is where they get their identities. So, these are all these layers that I want you to keep in mind as I talk about Matthew 5. First of all, that um, what we're seeing here is something that was written by an author. And that author had a specific purpose. He wanted to tell you about God. And he's going to do it through his worldview lenses, through the lens of the Old Testament. Y'all still with me? Was that too complicated? No. Some people are shaking their heads. No, you're not with me. All right. Maybe the rest of it will come together. All right. So um, with what I would like you to do is to put on with me your Old Testament glasses. There we go. Everybody put on your Old Testament glasses. There we go. The topics, words, theologies, and concerns of the Old Testament scriptures are foremost in the minds of the writers of scripture. Remember, the words and phrases were chosen by the authors of scripture to explain who God is and what our place is in relationship to him. It's not just a reflection of history. The words and phrases are carefully chosen. So, with that said... We're going to be talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. Those are our Old Testament glasses. Now, I put that in quotation marks just because we could have a whole other discussion about what it means by fulfillment of prophecy. Because many texts in the Old Testament don't look like prophecies, but Matthew, the book of Matthew, seems to think it is. So that will have to be a discussion for another day. So the first thing I want to show you. So if you've ever taken a class with me before, you know that I like to talk about um, inner biblical illusions. Yeah, yeah, you guys know about that. All right. So what I like to talk about is there is this idea, well, not idea, there is this phenomenon where, like Michael Lyons said, the people were reading scripture and creating their identity through scripture, and then they would write their own text and they would use that scripture. The book of Matthew is known for that. Am I right, Dr. O'Connor? 
Dr. O'Connor is the person I'm afraid of in this room today. He's going to come talk to me afterward and be like, Dr. Lear, you know nothing. And I'm like, sorry, 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 sorry. He'll fix it. He'll fix it. Um, but the book of Matthew is known for being full. He, over and over again, this happens so that it would fulfill scripture. And then he quotes a, a scripture, just like the prophet Isaiah said, just like the prophet Jeremiah said. And he says it, and he says it, and he says it, right? Um, uh, so he's, he's deeply embedded in scripture. He makes sure that he pays attention to it. But beyond just quotations, um, there's this whole theology like running around in the back of his head that he's learned from the Old Testament. And those come out in little like phrases and words that he uses from the biblical text that he's using. Um, and we see it in places that we don't even expect it. So the first thing I wanted to show you was this. So Matthew 5.1 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, you guys can see this, right? When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I put some Greek up there for you, and those of you who have taken Greek or are about to take Greek, which is most of you, will know that what you see here, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountains. Jesus went up, went up to the mountain. This is a phrase that's used over and over again for Moses. Moses went up to the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Interesting. So a phrase that's normally associated with Moses is being used for Jesus. Interesting. And then we see again. Uh, your English translations don't show this very well, but uh, Matthew 5, 2 says, and when he began to speak, or more literally, and uh, in opening his mouth, he taught them, saying. This is another phrase that is used specifically in the calling of Moses. Now go, and I will be with your mouth, or, and I will open your mouth, and teach you what you are to speak. It's another allusion, I would argue, to the person of Moses. Why would that be happening? Another thing, where does Moses talk to God most often in the Old Testament? On the mountain. Where is Jesus? On the mountain. Mountains are really important in the Old Testament. We're going to come back to mountains again in a minute. So in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, there was a promise made that one day, one day God was going to send a prophet like Moses, and he was going to come. And then it gives a lot of teachings about how you know a prophet is truly a prophet. Well, um, we continue on in the book of Deuteronomy, 
And we come, let's see if it's up here. Nope. Okay. Um, we come to Deuteronomy 34, which is the very last chapter. So it, Deuteronomy says, one day I will send you a prophet like Moses. And then at the very end of Deuteronomy, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. And for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. A prophet of Moses is coming. There has not yet been a prophet like Moses. Someone who showed signs and wonders. Does that sound like something, Dr. O'Connor? Someone full of signs and wonders. Someone who stood up to Pharaoh and his servants in the entire land. What's going on here? Jesus is being painted as that prophet that was being expected. Moses. We've been waiting for this Moses. And you'll see as you read throughout Old Testament scripture, uh, a lot of people look like Moses. Elijah does a lot of stuff like Moses. Joshua parts the Red Sea. So does Elijah, or the Jordan, actually. Excuse me. Um, all of these are like, is this him? Is this the prophet? but it's never quite the prophet. And then Matthew, who's painting a theology for us, wants you to understand through the words that he's choosing to use, he's here. That prophet you're waiting for, Moses is here with signs and wonders and to stand up against Pharaoh. Interesting. All right. So that's the first, well, I don't know what I want to call it, another layer. It's definitely not the first layer because we've gone all kinds of layers now. But okay, so the next section I want to talk about is the lens of the hope of the exiles. And I get really excited about this. Okay, so those of you who have recently at least taken my Old Testament history and lit class know what the exile is. Yeah, Isaac Nerdall is nodding his head, so is Sophie. Good. Um, yes, the, the, so um, let me look at the time. I've got 10 minutes. Okay, uh, we got to get going. Um, so uh, basically, if you read the story of the Old Testament, we have God choosing a people God saying, you are going to be my people, and because of that, you have to live in a certain way. And we see basically tons of stories of over and over again, the people not fulfilling that side of their agreement. They are people who are constantly failing, constantly failing, constantly failing. And then God saves them, and God saves them, and God saves them, until finally God says, you have failed too often. <laughs> 
You have failed to love God with your whole heart, and you have failed to love your neighbor as yourself. Done. And all these promises, God gave promises, he says, they're done. Or maybe. And God sent the people into exile. What does exile mean? So, the people had a land, a place that they were from. How many of you have a land or a place that you're from? All the MKs are like, no. <laughs> Don't ask me that question, Dr. Lear. Yeah, okay. How many of you grew, maybe grew up in one place? You have a home. You have maybe, you know, like some, you know, maybe, maybe some of you have even lived in the same house with your family your whole life. I can't imagine that, but it happens. I've heard. <laughs> um, and then, uh, or just imagine like we're all mostly, not all of us, but most of us in here are Americans. Imagine being taken forcefully from the place that you love, from the place where you feel comfortable, from the place where this is who I am, and being ripped up and taken to some place that you know nothing about and having to live there and work for somebody else. Uh, an example I thought of, and this might, hopefully doesn't hit too far from home, but imagine if we were taken over by China because China just sounds like a very foreign, it, it has a very different culture from us, right? Generally speaking. If America was taken over and we were taken and plopped all over the Chinese empire to go work there, we don't know the language necessarily. We don't know these cultures. We don't know how they, they have different gods than us. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine your situation. Imagine how you would feel. Not good. How many of you would miss home? How many of you would miss feeling like you belonged? Of eating the food that you used to eat. Instead, you have to eat something completely different. Imagine what that would be like. So this actually happened to Israel. God sent them. God allowed them to be taken. They were spread all over. And the people looked around and said, where's God? Have we gone too far? Can God ever love us again? What's going to happen? So keeping the exile as your glasses. Oh, Yes, keeping the exile as your glasses, let's look back at Matthew. Keep the exile there, okay? Don't lose it. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Matthew 4.24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds came to him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we see bunches of people, crowds, great crowds of people coming to him. And they are from lots of different nationalities. They are from different 
socioeconomic places, most of them poor, many of them are sick, and all of them are streaming to Jesus who's sitting on a mountain teaching. And if we look through, Dr. Lear did this, if we read through um, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, which you need to do, you'll see that there are, there's language borrowed from several texts in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61, Zephaniah 3, Jeremiah 31, um, Hosea 1, and Isaiah 51. And what's really interesting about all of these is that they are passages. I'm just going to skip through because there's no way we have time to read all of these summaries. All of these passages are addressed to people in exile. Every single, well, except for maybe uh, uh, Psalm 24, but it still fits. Um, they're all addressed to people who are in exile, people who are being oppressed, people who are crying because they have over them a king that is not their own. They are in a land that is not their own and they don't belong. They all have in common that God promises them a reversal of fortune. They promise a return to the land. One day I will bring you back to the land of promise. And that land will be fertile and Eden-like. Oppression from the enemies will be reversed. You are downtrodden by those Assyrians and those Babylonians. That's going to be turned around. Joy and singing, there's lots of it in these passages. All kinds of God dancing over you is in this, and all kinds of singing. It's repeated over and over again. You will be my people. Um, the promise of many descendants that was given to Abraham is reaffirmed. Healing is promised. Peace is promised. God will save them and be their salvation. And then the most interesting one, I think, is that righteousness, that, that they all talk about righteousness in slightly different ways. They talk about righteousness going to be imparted. Righteousness is sought by these people who are in exile. Those who know righteousness have God's teaching in their hearts, and they suffer because of righteousness, because they are different from everybody else. Interesting, right? Now, if you go through and read Matthew 5 and uh, these passages that I've given you, you'll start hearing all kinds of echoes of what's going on. Or Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's exactly what's in Isaiah uh, 63. talks about God comforting the oppressed. So what is being painted? How do these Old Testament glasses help us understand Matthew 5? Well, if you were in my Old Testament history and lit class before, one of the things that we've talked about is that the teaching of the exile is still relevant to us today. We, as God's people, live in exile. We live under the rulership of someone who is not our king. And what Jesus is announcing here as we start is repent. 
for the kingdom of God is near. And what is going on with all these illusions is that Jesus is announcing that all the hope of Israel is starting right here. Those who mourn, guess what? You're going to be comforted. And by alluding to these, all these promises, you're going to have your lands. You're going to have this. You're going to have a king is another thing that's repeated over and over again. These are all brought to the fore in, in this passage. And what's interesting is that God doesn't focus on, you're from Abraham. Don't worry. You're going to come back. It's 1140. I'll, I'll finish here. Instead, he focuses on the people, that, on characteristics that God focuses on all the time, the weeping, the mourning, peacemakers, and merciful, all these people who are living in humility in a land that is not their own, in a place that's not their own, rejoice. There's going to be singing and dancing because the land is yours. The kingdom of God is yours. And that's the promise for us as well. As we live in exile, in a land that is not our own, because who is our king? Jesus is our king. He is our ruler. We belong to his kingdom. But we also live in exile right now. And, and the Beatitudes remind us that all of the hope of the Old Testament is here. Cool, right? Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you guys. One of the things, so here's my application for you guys. Study the Bible more. Study the Old Testament and the New Testament more. I'd like to tell you guys to learn Greek and Hebrew. I want to see those classes maxed out next semester. And I want to see you rejoice because you are part of a massive heritage that is much more than just... I don't know, the, just the everyday, you are a part of a giant story, and that's awesome. All right. God bless, guys.